So good morning. We're, today we're doing our third part of our New Year's series, Happy New You. And uh, today we're going to be focusing on me and others, the relationship between us and the people around us. Our first week we talked about our relationship with ourselves and God and how crucially central that is to our ability to become better versions of ourselves, become closer to the, the version of us that God wants us to be, to be conformed to the image of his son. Last week, Bobby brought us a message where he talked uh, again about the importance of that, but also about the importance of what we think of ourselves and how all of that works. Today, we're focusing on some of our external relations. You know, I, I thought it would be important to let you guys know just a little bit about me and some of my preaching style. Um, next week, we're going to be starting a new series on the Philippians, the, the letter to the Philippians, and part of my style is that I like to go back and forth between topical preaching and exegetical preaching. So I like to do sermon series where we say, what are our questions for the Bible, and what does, what does God have to say about those things, and kind of figure out all of the places in the Bible where God talks about those, and get those answers. And then I also like to take time where we just let the Bible speak for itself, and say, what are the things that the Bible's concerned about, and how do we apply those to our lives? So I think that that balance is important, and that's kind of what we're going for, is that right now we're in a topical series, next week we're gonna start a, a more exegetical one, and our hope is to maintain that balance, and also keep you interested, because it can get boring if you stick to just one. So all that being said, let's have a word of prayer before we get in. Heavenly Father, thank you for another week. We've not had great weather this week, but we've had better weather than some parts of the world that we've heard about. We have lots to be thankful for, God. Thank you for the country we live in, where we're free to gather safely together. Thank you for all of the ways that you care for us and bring us together. Please, God, speak through me this morning. Let these be your words and not mine. We need a touch from you so we can leave here different. In the name of your son, amen. What's your favorite thing to do? Okay, now, like, chances are good. I, I won't take it personally. Sitting in church listening to a sermon, probably not, like, the top of your list, right? And there might even be something that you're going, boy, I can't wait to get home so I can go to sleep, maybe? <laughs> is, is there a TV show you like to watch? Uh, is, there, is there a particular sport you like to play? You know, maybe you only get to play hockey on the, at the Saturday night beer club? I don't know. Oh, I cut out there. But maybe, yeah, maybe there's a sport that you like to get into. Maybe it's gardening and winter is really hard on you. Maybe, maybe there's a TV show that you like to watch through. Did I say that already? Maybe there's a book you really like to read and you just can't wait to get home to it. My thing, my thing is video games, especially adventure games, ones with a, with a big story and interesting characters and lots of fun stuff that's going on. This is, this is what I like to do. But I've been finding this thing in my life lately, and some people have told me that it's called being an adult, and I hope that you can't relate too hard, but do you ever find that you spend all day going, I can't wait to get home so I can do this thing, and then you get home and you're like, I'm exhausted, and all I can think about is going to bed. And maybe if going to sleep is your favorite thing to do, then that's a pretty great situation to be in. But have, have you ever found yourself in that condition? 
Maybe it's just because I have little kids. It, this week, we reached the tipping point where we're as far from Charlotte's birthday as we are from Luke's birthday. So Luke is about to be three, and Charlotte just turned one. So I've got little kids, and that might have something to do with the energy levels, and then we were also sick over Christmas, but that's a hard spot to be in. Do you ever feel that way, where there's something that you just really want to do and you can't get to it because things, life, good things, right? None of these things are bad. But have you ever felt that way in your walk with God? Have you ever felt like there's something that God has for you to do and you know that it's what God needs you to do and it's just so hard to get around to it? That's a really hard feeling. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, I didn't get to play my video games today, (laughs) whatever. But it's another thing entirely to be going, God has asked me to do this thing and I can't seem to get around to it. That's really hard and that is a rough feeling. And it doesn't have to be a big prophetic something. What has God put before you? What, what is it that it is in your life that you know, okay, I know that God needs me to do this, I know God needs me to work at this, and like I said, it doesn't have to be a big prophetic something, right? This doesn't have to be, thou shalt go to the Ninevites. Right, this might be as simple as caring for a child or, or visiting a grandparent or it could be any number of things and I don't want to put the words into your mouth because I think that you're entirely capable of hearing from God for yourself about what those things are. Is it maybe something to conquer? Is it maybe something that you need to do? Is it someone that you need to accept? Someone that you need to love? Getting into our story for today, we can start with God's promise to Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham and he tells him that I'm going to make you a blessing to many nations and I'm going to make your your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I'm going to give you this land to live in. And basically none of that happens in Abraham's lifetime. He has some kids and he is living in that land but it is not his land. And the story progresses to the point where Abraham's descendants have finally grown into a great nation, the nation of Israel, but they're enslaved in in Egypt, and they make their exodus from Egypt, and they get this covenant from God under the leadership of Moses, and it's a big deal, and they're really on this upswing. They're going, we have left Egypt. We're no longer in slavery. We're experiencing miracles and the provision of God, and we're winning battles, and we got this law, and we made the covenant with God, and man, that's really cutting out a lot, isn't it? We're, the people are on an upswing, and then they finally get to the promised land that God has promised, promised land God's promised, and they say, let's send in some spies. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and so in sort of a traditional move, they send 12 spies, one from each of the, each of the countries. We used to sing this song in, in, when I was in camp. I wonder if you know it. Twelve men went to spy on Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good. What did they see when they spied on Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good? Do you know it? Some saw giants strong and tall. Some saw grapes in clusters fall. Two saw God was in it all. Ten were bad, and two were good. Okay, let's go faster. Twelve men spy on Cain, ten were bad, two were good. What did they see spy on Cain, ten were bad, two were good? That was like my favorite thing at camp. So they send in these spies, and they come back, 
and 10 of them were bad, and two of them were good. Let's read it. So Numbers chapter 13, verse 30 to 14, verse 1. Um, so they come back, and they, they, they deliver this report. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. This is just kind of a snapshot from the middle of this story. So they've had the exodus and then they send in these spies, and then the people wail. So Caleb and Joshua, they're two of the spies, and they think we can do it. But the other 10 think we can't. And the other 10 go through a community, and they spread this bad report. And they make everybody believe we can't take this land. And so they refuse. They say, we won't go. We're going to die. And God says, fine. You won't go. And the people realize, oh no, what have we done? We want the promise of God. We want to walk in this. We better go. And God says, no, you said you wouldn't go. And God doesn't go before them. And they go to meet battle with the people of Canaan and they lose. This isn't the part of the story that we usually tell in Sunday school. They lose that battle and they have to run for their lives. And God says, this whole generation will die in the wilderness. And they have to wait for the next one to come up so that they can take the land. That's a hard story. I don't know about you, I, I like thinking about God as the God of second chances and third chances and the God of 70 times seven chances. And I'm kind of freaked out by a story where God says, I'm done with you guys. I'm waiting for your kids to grow up. That's, that's hard and that's scary. And I'm not saying that that is God for you, but I am saying that that's a hard story. Because these people lost their inheritance because they listened to the wrong people. They had these 10 spies who didn't have any faith, who didn't understand enough about who God was and what God wanted to do and what God was capable of. And because they listened to them, they lost their inheritance. I wonder if Paul had this story in mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 30, or verse 33, that bad company corrupts good character. Who in your life keeps you from pursuing God's vision for your life? Maybe you've got financial goals that you're trying to meet, but then your phone rings. Hey, girlfriend, let's go shopping. Maybe you've got a gossip friend and you're trying, to, you're trying to cut back, you're trying to not be so judgmental, and you're trying to not spread, and then, so, oh, I have got the juiciest. Sounds like I'm really dragging on women, but I, I'm, I'm really not. <laughs> I didn't realize both of those examples kind of went that way. Maybe you've got a friend who complains all the time. He's always like, man, that preacher. Or maybe he's complaining constantly about the government. I don't know. Who doesn't complain about government, though? Maybe you've got a friend who is kind of your buddy when it comes to a substance abuse. Maybe you're trying to kick a habit, 
but you've got this one friend that every time they come over, they've got, they've got that something with them. Or they're the friend that you go out drinking with. Maybe you've got a friend who encourages you to not be your best at work. Who says, nah, let's, let's go mess around in the stock room and, and waste some time. Maybe you have a romantic interest that takes you off course. I'm not talking about a husband or wife. If that's the case, your ship's sailed. Sorry, you're done. Make it work. But a couple of good examples from the Bible. Samson and Solomon are both men of God who are taken right off track by the romantic interests that they have. So Samson gets involved with a woman named Delilah. Solomon has many wives from other countries, and they lead him astray to foreign gods. And this, this, this example of people in the Bible who are taken astray by the people that they're around, it, it goes all the way through. And it's something that we need to be really conscious of because if we want to be the people who will pursue God, who will be conformed to the image of his son, who will become the people that God wants us to be, we have to make sure that we're not surrounded by people who are taking us in the opposite direction. Does this go the other way too? I think so. Paul could maybe just as easily have written that good company corrupts bad character. I've been listening to a, a podcast lately. Um, I was doing a bunch of shoveling this week. I don't know about you guys, a whole bunch of shoveling this week. And one of the things that I like to do is I put some, put some earphones in and I, I listen to a podcast while I'm doing it. And I'm listening to one called, um, does anyone know Dan Carlin? It's called, it's called, uh, it's a history podcast. I forget what it's called. Yeah, Jacob knows it. Of course he does. Uh, and I've been listening to his series about the Persian Empire, and it's very interesting, and he's especially talking about the battles between the Persians and the Greeks, and one of the things that he said stuck with me, that when the Greeks would go out to fight, they would fight in what's called a phalanx formation, and they had these huge, enormous shields, like honestly this high off the ground, and these very, very long spears, and they would stand in a block, shoulder to shoulder with the man beside them, and they would hold their shields out, and it would just be a wall. And one of the neat things about that was it meant that the only armor you really had to wear were greaves for your shins and a helmet, because otherwise the shield completely covered you and part of the man beside you, and then your, shield, your spear stuck out through the side. Where this is relevant is I also learned that the Greeks would put their strongest fighters not just in the front row, we kind of expect that, right? If you're standing a bunch of guys deep, we would expect that the, front, the best guys would go in the front. But they also put the strongest men in the back row. And they would put their weakest fighters in the center. And the idea was that these weak fighters in the center, these men who had never fought before or were scared or any number of reasons why they might need a little reinforcement, would be surrounded by the brave, strong, capable soldiers, and they would be reinforced. They would feel better about being here because they had these other men around them that the, the Greeks were thinking about the effect that the people around you have. There's one more story that I want to talk about, and I don't think I have it up on the screen for you guys, but it's the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And in this story, the Philistines and the Israelites are lined up to have a battle. And one of the problems is that the Israelites don't really have a lot in the way of weapons, 
So this is, this is much later in the story. By now, the Israelites have taken control of the land that God has promised to them. They've kicked out the Canaanites. Uh, they're at war with the Philistines, and they've now instituted their first king. So Saul is king of Israel, and Saul has a son named Jonathan. And Saul is trying to figure out, what do we do? We've got this army, but they're basically armed with like pitchforks. And the Philistines have like a real army. They have armor, they have swords, they have shields. And Saul is trying to figure this out. In the meantime, Jonathan and his armor bearer, who there's a little bit of debate about what exactly that means, but the short of it is the guy would stand beside him in some sense on the battlefield. Whether he held his shield or whether he held his backup weapon or what exactly it meant, there's some debate, but it's not really important. So in 1 Samuel 14, verses 6 to 7, we see this. But Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, Let's go over to the outpost of those Gentile men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And did the armor bearer say, you're nuts. There's two of us. There's several dozen of them. We're going to die. No, the armor bearer says, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. And it's a cool story because they they go over to this outpost and the outpost is up on a hill and Jonathan says to the armor bearer, okay, so if we walk up and they say that, you know, we'll, we'll let ourselves be seen by the Philistines and if the Philistines say, stay there, we'll come to you, you know, we'll come get you, then we're gonna run away. We'll know that God isn't with us. But if they say, yeah, come on up, you know, and they invite us up, then we'll know that the Lord is with us. And I don't know about you, this isn't really the sort of fleece that I would like to lay my life on. You know? Like, that's, that's pretty brave of these guys to say, God is able to save, and nothing can stop him from saving, and so if this happens, we'll know that God is with us. I have great admiration for that, but I don't know that I'm that brave. I don't know about you. So they go up, and they walk up to this hill, and sure enough, the Philistine encampment sees them, and they say, hey, look, there's two Hebrews down there. Come on up, guys. We'll, we'll be ready for you. And Jonathan turns to his armor bearer and says, the Lord is with us. Let's go. So we'll pick up the story in verse 13. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. This plan worked? That's crazy. But what I really want to illustrate from the story is that Jonathan had somebody with him who encouraged him to follow what God had put in his heart. He had somebody with him who encouraged him to listen when God spoke and who was willing to take the risks with him. Jonathan had somebody beside him who would encourage him in his pursuit of God. Another great verse on this matter is from Ecclesiastes, chapter four, verses nine to 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. 
Our companions can push us to greater heights for God if we're careful about who we let as our companions because they can also have the opposite effect. Even Jesus was careful about who would be in his innermost circle. You know, we kind of like to think of Jesus as, you know, this big friendly dude who, you know, loved everybody, but Jesus had circles. Jesus had the 70. He had 70 people who he commissioned and sent out to spread his word and that he had this special relationship with. But he also had the 12. And the 12 were his apostles, and those were the ones that he asked to come be with him. Nobody talked about Jesus' big miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. But even more than that, Jesus had an inner, inner circle of three. And when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood because he's so terrified of what he's about to do for God, it's the same three that he pulls in close to him. It's Peter, James, and John. These are the three who form the innermost circle of Jesus. Who's in your inner circle? Of course, there are some that can't be negotiated. If you're married, your spouse is in there. If you have kids, you got to stick with them. Even your, your broader family, to a certain extent, those are important people. But what about intentional friendships? Can we choose the people that we need in our lives so that we can be the people that God needs us to be? Can we encourage one another in that way? Who do you need around you to accomplish the things that God has asked for you? Maybe you need to find somebody who's diligent so they can help you be diligent. Maybe you need to find someone who's generous so that you can be more generous. Maybe you need to surround yourself with people who are kind. Maybe you need to surround yourself with people who are faithful. Maybe what you need is somebody who's really interested in church. I knew a couple, and all it took was one of them to say, I don't really feel like going to church, and the other one didn't have enough conviction to follow through. So all it took was one of them going, eh, and neither of them would come. So maybe what you need is somebody around you who's going to say, no, this is important, we need to go to help you. Fill in the blank. What is the need in your life that you need to plug in order for you to accomplish what God has asked for you and given for you? I'll leave you with one last verse from Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Walk with the wise and become wise. A companion of fools suffers harm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that it would go deep down into our hearts. We pray that you would be at work with your Holy Spirit, changing us, transforming us, conforming us to the image of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that you have appointed good works for us to do. We thank you that you have plans for us to walk in. Help us to walk in them, Lord, and help us to surround ourselves with the people who will aid us in that journey. In your name, amen.